This is Tommy's Outdoors 84, and our guests today are Dr. Natasha Phillips and Dr. Annie Garbett, who are researchers at Sea Monitor Project. And as the title of the podcast suggests, we're gonna talk about basking sharks. But obviously, we're not gonna only talk about basking sharks, but a lot of other interesting scientific stuff around that. And uh, I just didn't want to drag that intro for too long. So as usual, uh, shout outs to the whole team at Sea Monitor and uh, especially for Ross McGill, uh, who make all those Sea uh, uh, Monitor podcasts possible. And shout out to uh, Tasha Phillips, who are really the first person I contacted at Sea Monitor. And, uh, you know, this snowballed uh, from there. And this is, um, I think, uh, fourth or fifth episode of a podcast with uh, those brilliant people working at Sea Monitor. Uh, so, uh, again, don't want to drag it for too long. Just a quick reminder that the video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. So, if you wish to see us talking and you only listening to this on the, any audio only platforms, you can head on to YouTube, punch in Tommy's Outdoors into the search box, and subscribe to the podcast. All the podcasts are available there in the video version, as well as more vlogs, gear reviews, and other outdoorsy stuff. And now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Tasha Phillips and Amy Garbett and Basking Sharks. Welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for your time and thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks so much for having us. Um, listen, listen, guys, we we are going to talk about basking sharks, and I'm I just I just can't wait to um, ask you all the questions. But maybe let's start like we usually starting um, with the round of introductions. So really, what I'm always interested in is like how how you get to the point where you are when you're doing this this awesome cool stuff that you're doing you're researching basking sharks and flapper skates and all this you know that's that's that just sounds great and i always interested whether you were you know from from a little kid set out on this path and and or whether you know you thought you're gonna be working in big finance or big tech and at some point there was like a you know a shift in in your life and it's like oh there's this other career path and do you want to go first, Tash? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, so uh, I'm Dr. Tasha Phillips, and now I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Queen's University Belfast, and I'm the biologging and biotinometry lead for the basking shark and the flapper skate research on the Siemens project. And to get into this, I suppose, yeah, I, I'm one of those people who've always known what they wanted to do, like as a kid. I've always wanted to be in marine science, and uh, I've just been very, very lucky to be able to follow that career path to where I am now, which is very much the, the dream position for me. I mean, working with these big charismatic fishes and uh, yeah. trying to work to ensure their survival for future generations. Awesome, awesome. Um, I, I actually wanted to be in science more than marine biology um, and kind of ended up in marine biology. So uh -huh. I started out um, with forensic science and then I've always liked animals, so I thought I'd combine the two. So I did a master's in um, animal behavior and welfare, 
and then a PhD that focused on biodiversity and conservation. So that's how I got into this. And my PhD right. was actually more on smaller animals, mm -hmm. and but all the techniques are just transferable to big animals. So I've been lucky enough to get a postdoc working right. with the Humanta project um, at Queen's. Okay, okay. And, and <clears throat> for our, our listeners, this is obviously not the first episode uh, with uh, people involved in Sea Monitor project. Like, how is it going overall? Are you? Are, is it? Is it on the right track? Like, in in general, the whole whole big project because it's a multi-year project, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, obviously, as with most people, we've had some delays because of uh, the pandemic. So that has mm. um, put back. Well, our field work at least, but other partners on the project have been able to do elements of their tagging. And obviously, there's an awful lot of work behind the scenes. You know, we're not in the fields. Mm -hmm. every day unfortunately so um there, there's a lot of work that we can be doing even while we're based from home and on the rare days that we get to be in the lab mm -hmm. so uh, yeah we're still we're still on target we're still doing well so we're really looking forward to being out on the water next year uh and that's that's actually a good question uh maybe a good question for me by me now uh are you more of a in the field kind of researchers and, and you're mainly out in the field and, and, and doing stuff, you know, tagging animals, measuring them, whatever you do, or you're more based in the, in the office and you're crunching data from the sensors and, and stuff like that. Because, you know, I found that, that when I talk to various scientists, sometimes it's in my head, this, this romantic image of people at, at high seas and, you know, breeze and birds. And, and they're like, no, 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 I'm actually in front of a computer writing, you know, scripts and crunching numbers. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's a big part of it. Um, I, I like the fieldwork aspect of it. It's always the part you look forward to. But a lot of the actual uh, research comes from crunching numbers, being on your laptop and mm -hmm. thinking about the questions. Right, right, right. Okay, but you're you're also spending time uh, in the field. That's, that's yes, yeah. That's the the bonus of the job, I think. Um, <laughs> that's the the part we all look forward to. Uh, Amy, listen, I have a question specifically for you because I was I was looking at, at your research and, and obviously uh, both of you, uh, Amy and Tasha, if anyone is interested in, at ResearchGate, you can find all the or your or your publications, all the papers. And, uh, you know, I, I think that each each of these papers alone would be a material for a separate episode of the podcast. It's just, you know, so I was trying to kind of get all the questions into into this format. And can you explain to me and, and our listeners, what is genetic connectivity and bioinformatics? These, you know, these, these two terms that kind of sounds cool, but I have no idea you know, what, they, what, they, what it could be. For genetic connectivity in the CMANTA project particularly, um, we're looking at how gene flows between different hotspots or between different populations or individuals. Um, and that's how it makes a, a viable um, population and how the animals survive. If there's connectivity between regions and animals are not isolated to one area, um, gene flow is able to be connected between two areas um, and increase the, the diversity. Okay, so is this the situation where you have uh, like a eastern population of an animal and a western population of an animal, and they're they're you know the same species, but there there's a slight differences if there if there's no connection with the genes. Is is that what we're talking about? Uh, not necessarily. It can be on any different scale. So even um, small animals that 
just live on the same beach and mm-hmm. um, between one bay and another bay there can be connectivity if they share gene pools mm-hmm. um, but it can also be for like, large animals that migrate um, they can be globally across from the Atlantic Pacific and mm-hmm. um, so it, it really depends on the species and we don't know too much about basking shark genetics mm-hmm. um, but the connectivity we're looking at is to make sure that there's uh, the different hotspots that we find for basking sharks are they interacting with other basking sharks in other areas? Right. But this is a mechanism that ultimately in a, in a large time, time scale leads to uh, evolving different species or different kinds, right? If there's... Um, yeah, if they're isolated um, and they're not able to mix, that's one of the ways that um, species can diversify into two subspecies. Yeah, yeah. So that so that's genetic connectivity. And what about bioinformatics? Is this the crunching crunching number part? It yeah. sounds like crunching number part. That one is definitely at least one podcast, if not two, to yeah. talk about bioinformatics. Um, and it's a, a big, big area, and so many different areas that can be focused in on it. But it is looking at the the ins and outs of how our genes are made up and what constitutes it, and how these differ between individual species and individuals within the species. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So so maybe before we're gonna focus on basking sharks, um, and, and I think Tasha, that is, that is a question for you. Um, you. You, in general, your area of interest are big fish, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and, and a big fish is a star, sunfish, tunas, sharks. And so as an angler, my question is, what is a big fish, right? Everybody is like after big fish. So how, is that actually scientific term, big fish? No, not really. <laughs> no, um, I tend to put as my interest thing in big fish. Um, otherwise, I'd have to put something like pelagic megafauna and it gets a bit mouthy. If you start Pelagic using... megafauna, I like <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, uh, my main interests are in big fish and in like conservation, ecology, movement patterns. And so my PhD was in uh, a lot of these elements of ocean sunfish ecology, which is the world's largest bony fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and even before I got into a more academic career, the first big fish species I was working on was actually the basking shark. Uh, mm-hmm. I got a volunteer placement with the Manx Basking Shark Watch, where they were doing uh, very similar to the work we're now proposing over here is you know, collecting uh, small genetic samples and deploying satellite tags to understand more about basking shark ecology for conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I was a research assistant then, uh, just kind of taking notes. And so now to be part of such a massive program to take those areas forward in UK and Irish waters is so exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how could you not be excited by these big fish? Yeah, yeah. And what would you consider big fish? Is it is it uh, anything to do with their ecology and movement, and or is it like a in kilograms or centimeters or inches? <laughs> like how how would you define big fish? Uh, well, I guess defining megafauna is always tricky because um, anything that's I mean there are specific definitions of things like the myofauna and you know, there are different size classifications. So I guess. Um, for me, I, it was more my interest are in fish that really that travel long distances. So they don't have to be particularly big. I and mean, we know fish of all different sizes can do really interesting movement patterns. But with something like the basking shark, where you've got this endangered species that can be up to 12 meters in length, and yet for most of its life, it just disappears into the open ocean. I love the fact there are fish this big that we still can't follow very easily. And we have no idea about the secrets of their life history. Right. But in order to protect them, we really need to know where do they go, 
what do they eat, what depths are they at? Um, and so that's what really excites me about the Sea Monitor project is the mm -hmm. fact that we've got the flapper skate and the basking shark. And by answering some of these questions about their secret elements of their lives, we can make a real difference in their conservation. Yeah, yeah. So what's the what's the status? What's the conservation status of of basking sharks and how 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 their population looks like at the moment? So the basking shark is listed by the IUCN, that's the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, who decide the red listing for all species. They're now classed as endangered, mm -hmm. and this is globally. So it, it's mainly because um, there have been historic basking shark fisheries. Um, they were once really prized for their oily livers. And said that the whole city of Dublin was once lit by the oil exactly, exactly. I I like to repeat that because that was a shocking fact that the entire city of Dublin, the streets were lit by the the lights fueled by basking shark liver oil. Yeah, it, it's incredible. It's I mean, like. And of course, I mean they were being fished like all around the world. So like there was this fishery in Ireland. There's been one in Norway. There's been one off uh, the coast of America. You know, lots of places were fishing for basking sharks, and um, obviously it was a really vital part, source of employment for local people and for regional fisheries. Um, but it was only obviously as fisheries became more recognised that more and more fish could be taken, and it became unsustainable very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, the basking shark, unfortunately, has these life history traits that. They're quite long lived. We don't think they have that many young or that often. Um, and so it's been hard for them to kind of keep pace. And so now we've got so few of them, obviously we'd like to learn more about them, make sure we've got these protective measures so they have got a chance to bounce back. Mm -hmm. And is there, does the recognition that they require some conservation effort or protection came out of the fact that uh, like you said, the fishery become in, inviable and there was a less and less of them and it was, you know, harder to get that precious oil or whether just, a, you know, invention of the electrical uh, lights and stuff. Yeah, that, that, I think it's a happened. bit of like, how, hmm. uh, so, so there was definitely getting better. Technology was available. Um, other oils became available. And at the same time, the fishery became basically economically unviable. It, it wasn't mm -hmm. worth fishing the sharks. They were taking too long to find and it just wasn't worth it in the end because there were so few of them. So um, it wasn't really stopped for maybe for conservation reasons, but it was stopped just in time for the sharks to be able to maintain some population. And obviously now, because people are, are more aware of environmental issues, that um, they've got yeah. this chance now to come back. So that that was my, actually, you already answered my follow-up question, whether whether it was they just stopped because it wasn't viable and nobody, you know, particularly was worried about the numbers. Or someone said, "Yeah, we need to protect them." So it was it was it was the former, and then later on, oh, okay, we you know we need yeah. we need to. We but need it's to... difficult to to do like a census of basking sharks and to find out how many there are in the first place. We still don't really know these questions, so um, it, it's uh, it's always a difficult one to judge how many fish are left uh, in any kind of fishery. So it is a challenge. Yeah, and so what what techniques and what technology you're using in Sea Monitor? To, to monitor or, or to find out something about the, these, these sharks. Yeah. Uh, Amy, do you want to talk about side of things or do you want me to? Uh, you're the, the tag expert, so <laughs> you can go for it. All right. Well, um, uh, primarily the whole point of Sea Monitor is to um, use innovative tracking technologies. That's one of the, the main aims of Sea Monitor. And it, obviously, we've got the EU funding from Interreg and supported by SUPB to, to use this new technology. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be focused primarily for the basking sharks on using satellite tags and acoustic tags. Uh -huh. So um, 
obviously satellite tags have been used in studies of basking shots uh, quite a few times in different studies. They've come fascinating results. Mm-hmm. Um, and these give you really detailed insights on the shark movements for up to 12 months. And then the tag will pop off and it floats to the surface and it relays its data and you can get the data back in the lab mm-hmm. and uh, look at where the shark has been. So that's really fascinating insight. And from that, we've seen that um, sharks tagged in Ireland have actually crossed the Atlantic to Cape Cod in uh, 993 days. Whoa. And you can there's, there's different things satellite tags can offer us. Um, but obviously they don't last very long. So we're also combining this with acoustic tag technology. Um, and the acoustic tags have a much longer battery life. So they can last for up to 10 years. And whereas the satellite tags are maybe the size of like a mobile phone, the acoustic tags are much smaller. They're about the size of like a USB. They're really tiny. Wow. Um, and they set out this like little pinging noise that's like a unique code for each shark. So we can identify each individual. Um, and when they go past receivers that we deploy at different points around the coast, these pinging sounds, these unique codes are detected by the receivers. So we can say, ah, oh, shark number one was here yesterday, wow. and maybe it's there today. And over a 10-year time frame, you might get lots of different records all over the place. So although you might not see every step of the shark's journey, you'll know specific hotspots of where it's been, and if the same individuals return year after year. So by combining the satellite tags that give us the detail and the long-term uh, hotspot maps of sharks coming back, we get mm-hmm. this detailed and long-term view of basking shark hotspots and movements and connectivity between populations. Wow, that's 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 fascinating. So uh, I presume that the GPS, the limitation of the GPS tag is obviously when the shark surfaces. But like, so this is a question, like how much they are spend, how much of their time they spend? Because, you know, we, we know instinctively basking shark is a shark you, you can see near the surface feeding and, you know, all those uh, uh, drone footage. And, but they're, are they actually spending the entire life close to the surface? Or are they, they, you know, spending some time of their life deep in a where the yeah, GPS tag doesn't work. So this is where I'm, when I'm, when I'm heading with this question, like the GPS tag, obviously you don't have a data if the shark dives. Yeah, so it's not actually a GPS tag as such. The, the GPS is a system that obviously has to work um, when the animal's at the surface. So um, in the sea monitor program, I believe the seals are using GPS tags mm-hmm. because they surface often as air breathers yes. as they can use GPS. So for us with the sharks, the satellite tags we're using is a different system. So they record. Okay, the so there's satellite tags, but not GPS. Tags. Yeah, so I, oh, you got difference. you got me here. I just assumed <laughs> that the satellite tags means GPS tag. Okay, it's, just, it's very very similar in that. Um, but with the with the satellite tags, that there are different kinds. You can get some which will relay data every time the shark would break the surface, mm-hmm. um, and obviously data can then be relayed. The ones that we're using are archival tags. So they store the data on the tag until the end of the deployment. So if they record shark movements. So we get location data, and they also record depth and temperature, and they'll record these every set time period. So for us, that might be like once a minute, several times a minute, um, and then they'll store that data on the tag. And when the tag pops off the shark after about 12 months, all the data is relayed because the, the tag will float to the surface, and then it can send us all this lovely data. Oh, interesting, interesting. And so... How do you how do you tagging these these sharks? How does how the process looks like for tagging them? <laughs> well, um, obviously, with fish this big, we need to be very cautious because uh, they're wild animals. They they can't be detained or slowed down. Um, hmm. You can't catch one. 
And obviously, you know, they, they deserve respect. You know, one big movement of that tail and you could be in real trouble. So we do need mm. to be careful for their safety as, as well as ours. Uh, and all our methods have to be ethically approved at, at various various different levels. But oh. um, in, a, in a nutshell, we go out on the boats looking for sharks on calm days where they're more likely to be at the surface. Um, and then we'll approach them very carefully. Uh, and you have a tagging pole. And that then um, inserts the tag at the base of the shark's dorsal fin. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, you know, like microchipping a pet or getting your ear pierced and mm-hmm. things. So quite often the sharks don't react at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're careful enough, then the shark will just swim away and take the tag with it. And it's all very calm and peaceful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, but you're, you specifically mentioned that this is approved as shark welfare mm-hmm. and so have you heard any 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 feedback like oh you're you know doing harm to these bull sharks and you know any sort of this this sort of uh, feedback uh not not really i mean on previous projects we had i mean one thing i guess is good is the fact that people are saying these things from a place of concern of animal welfare which mm-hmm. is obviously the top priority for all of us but um i mean a- amy do you want to describe the licensing process that we've been through oh please so there's a licensing process oh yes oh wow <laughs> yeah uh, yes very please their uh, procedure to be able to do any of these things legally um, and it has to be approved by the home office or by the government's um in the region so down south in ireland or in the uk Mm-hmm. Um, and there's very specific animal welfare regulations that have to be approved on so many different levels to make sure that ethically we are doing um, the research for good reasons. It won't harm the animals, um, that there's no stress, that um, we're doing everything as best practice as we can. Um, so it's quite a rigorous process to make sure that we're not unnecessarily doing any damage to the animals um, and that the outcome is worth the the any potential harm that could happen as Natasha said it is just like microchipping a pet so mm-hmm. um on an animal that size mm-hmm. we don't think there's very much chance that that's going to hurt it and as they don't really move yeah. sometimes when they're tagged um they don't seem to notice it it's unlikely that that causes many real harm yeah. but one of the things that someone's asked me is um like just swimming alongside them they often ask if that bothers them um, and so many people ask because they're concerned and they're worried about it and they think like we should just leave them in peace um, yeah. which is completely understandable but for this research we're only doing it for conservation purposes we're not just poking an animal or following them or tracking them just because we are interested it has mm-hmm. implications for conservation purposes yeah and so what what sort of process you need to follow when you want to get the approval so you need need to like is there like a lot of paperwork involved or yes. you need to <laughs> uh it's it's taken over a year to be able to get make sure we put all our paperwork in line over so, a year to yeah, just to really get the happened. permission to stab the shark with the tag <laughs> well we try not to call it that but yes yeah. <laughs> so at the moment each person on the project like myself amy the pis on the project we all have had individual training for personal licenses um, we have to then work through a licensed establishment, which is obviously Queen's University Belfast, where we have access to um, training, uh, veterinary support, ethical welfare groups. Um, we need to make sure that the project itself, like the, the plans we have for this project is specifically licensed. And obviously each one of these has different tiers where we have to run it past the animal welfare group at Queen's. We need to get it past um, veterinary support, 
um, inspectors and there are different rules in different regions. So we need to make sure we comply with all of these. Yeah, I, I, I am tend to ask a question that you probably can't can answer in any other way than the uh, official way, but it seems like an excessive thing, right? Because I, I understand the concerns and we probably don't want, you know, anyone just go around these sharks and do whatever they think they do because, oh, I'm researching, right? But then mm-hmm. you folks are reputable scientific institution and program and, and still there's so many hoops to jump it, it seems yeah but i think that's vital i think it's essential that we're, we're dealing with an endangered animal here you know if you think of things like what normally comes to mind you think of an endangered species like pandas or polar bears you know you want to make sure that anyone who's going to be dealing with them is ex- precisely trained and knows exactly what they're doing and they won't cause any harms mm-hmm. or discomfort we can't afford to um I just prevent any of these species from going about their daily business and, and ensuring that they go on to reproduce mm-hmm. and contribute to the future um, gene pool. It, it's mm-hmm. really important. So yes, it, it can be frustrating, but it takes mm-hmm. time. But I think this is essential. And I think that's the view of the, of the whole team. The endangered okay. species, the species must come first. That's why we're in this, is to help yeah. preserve them for the future. Gotcha. So it's a little bit of a like, you want to make sure that what you do is not going to cause harm, even though you think it might not cause harm. Yeah. You you want, you know, almost second and the third and the fifth pair of eyes on it. You know, what you think. Okay, so that's maybe a, a good uh, good segue or good pivot for a short second to flapper skate. Um, and and um, we already recorded an episode uh, uh, about the flapper skates, but this is like a good 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 moment to ask because flapper skates are also tagged right and there's a lot of flapper skate being and skate in general or common skate like there's this this divide because there are two species of skate that were lumped into one common skate but as far as i understand there is an important aspect of um tagging those those skates by recreational anglers right and I think that the whole thing and the whole series of podcasts that we're recording right now started from this one conversation on Twitter <laughs> about the skate being landed. And there's a, one of the anglers put a video out. Obviously, you know, the guy is over the moon with the skate. It's like fantastic. And there's like, oh, but you shouldn't be doing this. Are you doing this? And you're tagging. You're not tagging. Is it scientific program? Like, like what's your, in, in, in terms of, you know, I, I ask open question, you know, because it's either with relation specifically with relation to skates, but maybe also it's a it's a more broad, more general questions because the same goes, for example, for poor beagle sharks, which are another endangered species that gets uh, routinely landed by anglers and tagged, and it's like, oh, are you handling that correctly? Are you not handling that correctly? So, you know, with basking shark, obviously they're they're feeding on 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 plankton or I, I probably not using correct term it's like no that's it <laughs> yeah that's it okay so they're feeding on plankton so uh plankton has this 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 property that it doesn't hold well on the hook so they cannot be fished <laughs> right so so basking shark is not a angling fish or angling trophy but if they were they surely there would be that aspect of and like with the flapper skate, like with poor beagle shark, with the other the anglers are also catching them and they're tagging them, releasing them. And that data is also useful and can be used for, for the research. So 
how do you reconcile that on one end you need to go through the year worth of paperwork and all this this uh, uh, you know approval levels to do that program on basking sharks? On another hand, you have a lot of uh, uh, endangered fish, and it's like, oh yeah, you're good to go. You you know you put a half a mackerel on a you know 10.0 hook, and you just hold the thing in, and you put the tag in the fish, and you release it. How do you reconcile the the, the two? Well, well, the the anglers are regulated too, but um, Amy, you, you know more about this than me. Like. Yeah, I think that there's slightly different techniques to what are doing, and it also depends on jurisdiction. Um, in Northern Ireland, you do need a license to be able to tag skate um, and capture them. So you're not supposed to just, they're regulated in that way, that you're not supposed to just go out and target them specifically because they're endangered. Okay, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Is that the license that the charter skipper needs to be licensed with that license or is the individual anglers needs to have that license? Um, I think it's actually the anglers. Um, oh. Each individual angler needs to, because I know we've had to go through a license specifically to target skate, additionally to our um, licensing for the tagging. Okay, <laughs> gotcha. mm-hmm. So for skate, um, I'm not sure about poor be uh, poor vehicles, but with skate, different jurisdictions have different regulations, which do monitor and control it. Um, and there are also training programs to be able for best practice for the actual tagging. Mm-hmm. So in Northern Ireland for skate, we have the CD project from Ulster Wildlife. They teach anglers individually how to do best practice in tagging um, and all the animal welfare aspects to it of like how to handle the fish where to put the tag, um, warning signs of it's in distress, how to quickly put it back in the water to make sure um, it's able to recover. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that they're using the data for a longer term purpose. They're not just tagging for tagging sake. Um, it's all on a regional scale and they're working with us with the flapper skate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all comes back to the, the bigger picture of conservation purposes. Yeah, but overall, do you think that it is worth the risk right because i I obviously i'm assuming that an angler or a charter skipper who goes on a training course of handling it's quite a different you know uh, level that you need to meet than you folks where you have like a dismounting of paperwork so obviously there is a little bit of a i mean i can jump in on that one at least like the the paperwork is different depending on what kind of tags that you want to deploy so the main Uh thing that we have that is different is that we're using electronic tags so obviously the satellite tags that we're using or, or the acoustic tags, there's an electronic purpose to it, an element to it, which oh. makes it a, a little bit more complicated. So that is the element that for us requires the extreme levels of, of ethics and review and licensing. Whereas uh-huh. for the anglers, they tend to use floy tags. Yes. Um, and the floy tags, are, as you know, the, the little plastic ones with an ID code. Mm-hmm. So again, uniquely identifies the fish, but because it's uh, a fish identifying marker, not an electronic tag, there are different levels of welfare associated, and they're obviously a lot smaller than the ones that we're using. They're like um, like the ones yeah. you see in in your clothes when you buy mm-hmm. new clothes. It's those yep. little tags. Yeah. So um, obviously, once the anglers have gone through and got their licensing approved for for flapperscape, for example, from DARA or from regional groups, um, they also then undertake training in best practice from CD or, or similar uh, groups. Mm-hmm. It's really extensive training. Um, it's really nicely done. Uh, we've, we've done it as well. Um, and they take people out in the field to practice with other right. licensed anglers. Um, so they, they, the anglers do have to work really hard for their licenses. And obviously, mm-hmm. they probably have more experience handling animals probably than we do because they'll be out in the field for their passion, whereas we're only mm-hmm. out in the field when, when we get the chance. 
Yeah. So I think um, it's a balance of experience and also what tags you're using. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's you know interesting to see to hear that the anglers because like in the Republic of Ireland, you know, you don't have a training for anglers, and in fairness, that's usually not angler who is handling the fish un- unless they go on their own boat, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I'm I'm 100. I'm 99% sure there's no training for. Oh, there is a voluntary training, but it's not like formal requirement that you need any sort of a license to, uh, you know go ahead in your boat and catch a poor beagle shark or flapper skate or anything. But overall, you know, assuming that the significant, well, maybe not significant, but a portion of these fish are being caught by, let's say, untrained anglers. Um, but there, then, you know, the, usually it's a charter skipper who, like you said, have years and years of experience in handling those fish, probably previously from, from commercial fishing experience. Is... And there is obviously mortal, some mortality rate on those catch fish, it's, it's, right? There's no, no way about it. Do you think that overall it is worth the risk uh, given all the data, like all those fish are getting tagged and there's a lot of fish tagged by anglers, like you said, because there's a whole bunch of them and they're doing that. Some of them are like compulsive, obsessive and doing that every weekend or something like that. So they, I'm assuming they tend to tag much more, much, much more uh, fish than than researchers. Is it, is it is it worth in the end, or you think like, well, you know, is it like part of you thinks like, well, I'd rather those folks not mingle those fish and not put those tags. We good with what we do. I think one of the biggest parts of that is that anglers they enjoy fishing and they'll be doing it anyway, so they will be <laughs> landing the fish. Um, it's often hobbies for people and the fish will be brought on board anyway and some may be released and hopefully if they can tag the ones that they're releasing and the endangered ones particularly um, that takes all of about 10 seconds extra so the benefit for that is worth it and if they're catching the fish already they may as well tag it because then at least there's some useful information gathered as well as their hobby. Yeah. yeah, and the anglers that we've spoken to have been so enthusiastic too. I mean, it's, yeah. they're, they're, it's a wonderful resource. And the anglers that, that we've met who have been interested in helping with the project, obviously, they care about the long-term uh, implications because obviously if you if you, that's your hobby and, and all your fish disappear, then your hobby dries up as well. So it mm-hmm. kind of regulates itself in that sense that the anglers yeah. we've met really care. And that's the thing that really matters is that the animal welfare always comes first. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I suppose in terms of talking about mortality after capture, I mean, that's something that we're actually able to examine using different kinds of tags. Again, uh-huh. um, we'd like to be using accelerometers on some of our fish. And that's the aim for part of our work in sea monitors to look at um, uh, how capture, maybe um, um, different methods of capture might affect the fish. So we can use accelerometers, kind of like the ones you get on your mobile phones. If you turn your phone screen, it automatically turns. That's because an accelerometer in there tells you which direction, tells the phone which direction it's facing. So if we put this on a fish, a very similar technology, it'll tell us exactly how the fish moves in different three dimensions. So we can get an estimate then of fish energy use as well as how the fish is moving in its environment. So we can look at recovery times, for example, after release. So um, with other fishes that we've been using, like the sunfish or the tuna work I've been involved in, it's been a really valuable way to see how long it takes the fish to recover and resume normal swimming behavior. So part of our work with the flapper skate is to look at this and say, look, how long does it take them to recover after they're released by, you know, catch and release angling? Wow, so it's something we can actually examine really closely. And 
that again can help inform best practice for for anglers who would like to be yeah. involved in this practice. Is, is there is there any any data that you would be comfortable sharing in 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 regards uh, to you know, well, how... not that we have yet that's the unfortunate thing so we okay. haven't been out on this yet but so far from uh the tuna work we'll be reporting on something similar soon um, and they're able to obviously detect then when the fish start feeding again and things like this. So you can yes. tell the fish is then back up to speed or uh, if there's it's still in the flight response after it's been released, maybe it'll be swimming for a bit longer at an increased uh -huh. uh, tail beat frequency. So maybe with the skates, if they're disturbed after capture and release, you might see them swimming for longer than expected. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, and obviously we'd like to see a sudden burst behavior, which means maybe the skater jumping onto prey. So there are lots of different things we can look at on this to try and improve best practices. Of course, mm -hmm. we're always trying to improve our welfare. And I'm yeah. sure it's the same for most anglers. They want to catch big fish. and Big fish only stay there if they are allowed to grow and get bigger and bigger. Yeah. Oh, listen, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that you, that you said that, like, that thing that most anglers are actually want you know, they care about the fish, they care about the welfare Definitely. of the fish, because this is this, this important point. The fish is gone, angling is gone. Thank you very much. So yeah. it, it, just, it, just, it just makes sense. Now, the angling community has been so valuable for us. It, it's something that we've been really grateful for, particularly for the skate work, obviously, that, um, you know, the number of anglers who've been in touch with us or, or through CD, it's, um, it's really heartwarming to see how the whole community can come together to conserve a fish that no one really knows anything about. Yeah. So, so now is maybe a good moment to say, like, if 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 you're an angler, if, if the anglers listening to this podcast, and obviously many of anglers will, um, what what would be what would you advise? What they should do to get involved, or you know, whether it's just like keep doing what you're doing, just make sure that that you know you have a tags or charter skipper that you're going with have a tags. Or is there anything that you would, you know, recommend doing to get in touch or, or you know, whatever to help the research? We have another part of um, the skate work that is a genetic program. Um, so it's anglers can get in contact with us and get some genetic kits and we can go through training with them of how to best practice take um, a small genetic clip that we can use um, so they can via social media. Um, or email addresses or through you if you uh -huh. want to absolutely yep and um, they can get in contact with us and we can provide kits or uh, if they're in the north sea deep um for tags and rfi um in the republic they have ploy tags that they're able to provide and the genetic kits as well all right all right so, so you, you're saying like to contact this contact sea monitor and yeah and so yeah that's probably under... worth mentioning the the sea monitor twitter uh, if anyone's on twitter we're sea monitor one at sea monitor one um if you get in touch with that then we will be in contact really quickly because we'd, we'd love more people to be involved oh yeah you're you're very you're very responsive on twitter and obviously i'm i'm, I'm gonna put the links to sea monitor and and all the relevant links in the description of the show and uh, and also on on social media, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention all that. Okay, it's um, so just 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 to close off the uh, data and the behavior. Um, so, do you have any data? Just just for as an example, say you mentioned tuna. How what is the mortality rate or what is the you know average behavior? Like how does it look like? Because that's something that to me is of the great interest um because you know i was uh i was this hardcore catch and release angler right uh, especially in my younger years when when people are more explosive like oh how dare you kill the fish and, you know and then i 
I started thinking about is in terms of like, okay, what is the mortality rate? Like why, you know, these other things are coming and it's like, you know, maybe it's better to catch one fish, kill it and eat it rather than go ahead and catch 10 fish and then pat yourself on the back. It's like, yeah, I released them all, but maybe effectively you killed five rather than that one, you, you know? So is there any sample or example data that you would like to share with us just to give us sort of a ballpark idea what's what's going on with the fish after release? Well, I guess it's really difficult because oh, the, I mean the tuna one is still that study is still ongoing so um, that hopefully will be published shortly uh, it's all being run through uh, TCD at the moment but um, from previous studies I mean it's difficult to say because obviously each species can be very different in how they yeah. respond to stress uh, and stress is uh, easy to kill fish through stress um, it can affect their immune responses and it can affect all kinds of things. So I guess as long as, but then you can also say that fish can be highly resilient. It, it really depends on, on the situation. So, mm -hmm. I mean, for catch and release anglers, the important thing, I guess, is, is to try and keep the fish, um, get it back in the water as, as quickly as possible. So like when we're working on flap escape, for example, we turn them around as fast as we can. And um, in the meantime, because we have to delay them on deck temporarily for tapping, Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of um, things you can do to reduce stress and improve welfare. But for us, that would be like ventilating the gills with seawater mm -hmm. and covering the eyes with a damp cloth reduces stress. But obviously, if you're angling, really, you want to be able to get your get the fish, have that sense of satisfaction, maybe take a quick picture and get them back as quickly as you can. So if you can mm -hmm. keep Grip and green photo. <laughs> yeah. So if you can keep it in the water during those sections, your recovery rates will be shorter. It's things like taking it out in the air, which would be more uh, stressful for the animal. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm sure anglers will already know all of these things. The quicker you can be, the longer it's out on deck, the, the harder it will be for the fish to recover. So yeah. if you can keep it in the water, then do. And yeah. uh, maybe take a picture over the side to let it go quickly. Yeah. Something like that. And, and obviously you, you know all that, but I have to say it for, for other listeners that it always, you know, cracks me up when, when you see angler. And I'm, and I'm not intending to crap on anglers now. I'm an angler myself, and I, I obviously uh, I, I, I love this, the sport of angling. But sometimes you can see like, guys like dragging the fish through the sand and then unhooking it for five minutes. The fish is bloated, and then he grips and grins it for another five minutes and then release that half-alive fish into the water and finish like always back in the water conservation and the fish stocks and and you know part of me says like dude that's a dead fish that's a dead fish right there I you better this. you better keep it for the pan because like, <laughs> i i get the educational aspect of it that someone may say oh yeah he released the fish but uh that's a very valid point if you intend to release a fish don't don't you know treat it very carefully rather mm -hmm. than make sure it's all covered in sand and dry up and all that. Okay, let's let's go back to basking sharks now. Is would it be fair to say that all that we discussed now in relation to about the relation of anglers and flapper skate and the conservation effort in terms of basking sharks you could almost replace anglers with sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, swimmers or, or surfers or, you know, uh, recreational boat users, because there is also like a group of recreation, recreational people, people who recreate on the water, who interact with basking sharks in a positive or negative way. Is, is that the component of, of research in, around basking sharks? Um, not so much for the Seamonter project, uh, but Sighting's data is really useful. 
Um, and the Irish Passing Shark Group, you can report your sightings to them and they're using that data um, to look at different patterns in basking sharks. But sea monitor, we're not looking so much at sightings data, um, more at the actual movement patterns from the, the tags that we're putting on. Mm-hmm. And is that the problem? I guess in terms of people, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was saying in terms of people being in the water, just uh, I guess we always need to remember to give these animals space because they they are big and it, it is easy still to, to stress them, obviously. So just make sure we give these big animals the space they deserve. So I know there have been a few videos of people getting a bit close, but not only for the animal's benefit, but also for our own, because they, they are dangerous. If the shark's tail whips around quickly, like it, it can be a, a very dangerous thing. So um, we would recommend people to really keep their distance of at least something like 20 meters uh, to be able to give the animal space to move. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and is is that, have you have you heard about any like uh, uh, there is obviously a a significant thing and and even social media campaigns of keep your distance and you know all the, all the things that you said did, did you did you are you aware of any problems with that did you think it's a it is an issue or is it not really something that is affecting sharks but you know in terms of numbers because i, I am wondering if that's like a Every now and then you see on YouTube video of a guy trying to grab the, you know, shark's tail or shark fin and then everybody goes like, oh, you stupid, what are you doing? Or is it sort of a problem that you're aware of and, and you're trying to either educate people or, or perhaps you're aware in the sense of you need to be careful what you're saying about your research to, to not inadvertently encourage those sorts of, sort of interactions? Yeah, we definitely don't want to encourage this kind of <laughs> this kind of interactions. Like that. I think, obviously, giving the sharks space to go about their business is the most important thing. Um, we don't want anyone to be harassing wildlife. I mean, I don't think anyone means to be harassing wildlife. It, it always comes from people just loving the animals, maybe a bit too much to, you know, yeah. and, um, maybe caution gets thrown to the winds. But this is where hopefully by some of the outreach we're being involved in, involved with, we'll be able to help on this front is to show people how much space to give these animals and and how to go about that. And that's um, also with regional groups, like Amy mentioned, the Irish Basking Shark Group. Um, they do a lot of education and outreach to be able to show people about these amazing animals. Um, and then also like how best to go about, if you see a shark, how to keep your distance or, or wait and see if it approaches you. You, know, you don't chase it or like get mm-hmm. too close on, on your terms. If the shark turns around and you're staying still, maybe that's different. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, there's definitely a lot of guidance out there for people who are interested in how yeah. to have responsible shark encounters. Yeah. What what uh, what data what results you're expecting to get out of your your research and how much we know already about about those sharks and and so are you are you expecting to you know uh, fill fill in some blanks based on what we already know about sharks or are we know so little that this is really like a like a uh, blank page. Well, we know quite a bit about basking sharks, I suppose, in some areas. So um, there have been some excellent satellite tagging studies uh, previously with um, small numbers of sharks from different regions that have shown that, you know, they can travel really long distances. But to date, there's only been two examples of basking sharks crossing the Atlantic. So that's quite an exciting thought. They can travel quite so far. And there's some sharks tagged in Ireland. We know from Irish waters, they can get across the Atlantic to Cape Cod. They can go as far south as Morocco. They, they, they're really global citizens, but then some of them appear to be staying nearly year round. 
So there's lots of different strategies for basking sharks. And that's the thing that we need to hone in and say, look, how much they're using different areas. So from these tagging programs, we can say, as you know, are they regularly being seen in these hotspots? Is it the same animals using these hotspots? Um, or are they just moving kind of in the more wandering pattern following food or temperature or other elements of their habitat that they're looking for? Um, so these are the kind of areas that why are they using these areas is the big question. And is it regular year by year? Can we call it a true migration if they've all got oh. these different strategies? That There's some bigger questions there that there's some proper knowledge gaps we hope to fill. Yeah. And how much we know for sure about the life history and strategy? Like, for sure, we know about basking sharks. I don't think too much we can actually confirm. Um, more uh -huh. information is always better, especially in terms of endangered species. Mm -hmm. um, and, for example, like the number of pups, we don't know how many young they have. We only have small examples of, I think, one individual female um, had five pups and one stillborn pup. Um, so that's the only estimate really we have of how many offspring they have in one go. Wow. But that could be a rare counter, that could be the norm, that could be, we, we just don't know. Right. And that was from a, a fisheries um, capture, wasn't it, as well? That was from the fisheries, so that wasn't exactly a natural birth either. Could have been stress-induced or, yeah, lots of reasons. So hmm. still so much we don't know. Um, and I think the more information, the better. To confirm the things we think we do know. <laughs> right, right. I think this is a problem from interviewing scientists. We, we're not allowed to say forever. You never, you can never prove anything. You've only got data to confirm a theory. And so yeah. you can never confirm it. <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> and there's, there's so many questions and possibilities. And the more information we get, the more we can kind of refine our theories and be like, this is what we think is happening. We're really confident. We're really, really confident. Mm -hmm. But more evidence might come in at some point in the future that might change that. So for us, it's only ever going to be a theory. Uh, no matter yeah. how confident we are about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig nevertheless uh, with some, some things, like, for example, uh, the population. So in ideal scenario, like if the, pop if the population of basking sharks were healthy, is it, would you think it's like we are 10% of it should be or 30% of it should be? You know, how, how bad is it for to a to certain extent? Because you know, for the casual observer, it might be like, yeah, they're around, you know, it's like, they're not, if you compare that, for example, to, uh, I don't know, porbigal shark, there seems to be quite common. That could be a regional problem, I guess, is the fact that you can seem to be quite common. I mean, with the flapper skate is a great example of this, that in mm -hmm. certain hotspots, they seem really common. So like in, in the Sound of Jura in Scotland, they're, they're relatively, if you go fishing for them, there's a good chance you will actually catch one. Mm -hmm. But that's because they've kind of been left in these like refuge areas where it's ideal habitat and they haven't been persecuted. And obviously now for the skates in Santa Jura, they're protected by marine protected areas. They really look after them there. Um, but then if you just travel outside of that, you might not get any. So you might get regional hotspots where, you're, yes, they appear to be common, but how does that relate to the broader population or how many there are? And those are really difficult questions to answer for wild animals, particularly ones in the sea where you can't exactly uh, number them all and count them later, like they just disappear. Mm -hmm. So um, I hope that's something that we can build on um, throughout this study is to, to be able to understand how an understanding or like an estimate of how many we have and whether that's something that's uh, giving a positive indication that these conservation measures might be working. 
Yeah. Can you can you ex explain that that disappearance of the of of the basking shark? So are they just showing up in a certain time of the year to feed on the surface, and then they they're gone, and we don't know really what's happening with them, or we know something thanks to your to your tagging programs? How how does that look like? Unfortunately, we haven't actually started our tagging yet. Um, mm -hmm. So ask us in two years, we might be able to give you a much more rounded answer. Okay. Um, so there is yeah, no I mean, nothing like a pre-existing, you know, assumptions what's what happening. Well, I, I guess the, the most that we can say from data so far is it appears that the sharks are seen in greater numbers in the spring. Mm -hmm. um, and then again, like maybe at the end of the summer and the autumn. So you get to kind of like a wave of sharks at that point. But it really varies between years. And so um, about, I don't know, about five years ago, I say, we would have said that like Malin Head was a perfect place to, to think of a basking shark hotspot. They seem to be there every year. Mm -hmm. um, but then over the last few years, there have been very few at all there. And it seems the sharks have completely changed their movement patterns. And we don't know why. But then obviously from this year during lockdown, we were given so many sightings and, and video recordings of the sharks at Mellon Head again. So it might be there's some kind of natural cycle as to where the sharks are going or, or uh, maybe the plankton bloom was particularly good that year. But until we know more about the sharks and their movement patterns, which hopefully the tagging data will give us, we can then compare that to like the ambient environment and the temperature or the food availability and say, why we think they're using these different areas and if then we can kind of predict where they might go in the future i think that's the more kind of questions these lead on to but it's really hard to understand not only what an animal does but why it's doing that right. uh, and that's the real challenge for us yeah yeah okay um I, i just want to switch the gear for a second and ask you a little bit of a kind of evolutionary question about basking sharks right they're they're feeding on plankton which is kind of similar uh, life strategy like whales, which obviously evolve much later than sharks. In, in, shark, in the timeline of sharks, are basking sharks like a, a, a new invention, N new nature's invention? Like, oh, let's, you know, obviously I'm paraphrasing that, but let's, let's have a shark that instead of having big teeth and feeds on, on you know, this big predator, feeds on on plankton was it was it some are these strategy for sharks evolved later or in 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 the timeline of sharks or was it something where the sharks begin its existence and then moved on to um, being predatory fish i think evolution is more on a scale so it's not really before or after it's just a gradual change mm -hmm. um, and asking shark actually do have teeth um They have tiny little teeth in their mouth that we don't really know what they're used for, um, potentially mating or uh, interuterine cannibalism. So they're mm. uh, they're siblings in the oh. yeah, yeah in the uh, uterus. Yeah, um, so 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 maybe if, if you can explain that to, to because I, I kind of nodded, <laughs> but nodded maybe a lot of our listeners don't know that. So can you ex explain that? Um, yeah, there's a interuterine cannibalism is where. In the, the womb, in the stomach, uh, when the pups before they're born, um, they can choose to eat their siblings before they're born um, as an extra nourishment. Um, there's many different reasons why. So that's why teeth, that's one of the theories of why basking shark have tiny teeth um, when they're not able to get uh, plankton when they're in the uterus. Uh -huh. They then feed on their neighboring babies, yeah. brothers yeah. or sisters. 
Yeah, and that's yeah. A quite that, that that happens in in many species of sharks. It's it's like a part of the thing that is happening. It's it's not like oh every now and then this happens. It's 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 like a thing yeah, that's always going to happen in certain species of sharks. Yeah, it's common. I'm not quite sure um, the reasons behind it or what they think the the benefits are, uh, but I do know it happens. It's quite common in sharks. Um, yeah, it's really. Really bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Especially for basking sharks, people don't think of them like this. <laughs> Everyone's like gentle yeah. giants. You know, like when they're really small, they don't seem that gentle. <laughs> <laughs> that's very, that's very interesting. Okay, so 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 going back to 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 my question on uh, yeah, I understand this on on a scale, but you know, is a is a plank, plankton eating sharks something that appeared later in the evolution of sharks, or were they around pretty much? from the very beginning of sharks or we don't know like many things we don't i'm sure someone knows and i'm sure we can find out i don't know i don't know but i'm sure we can look that up and, and like do a bit of research and send that yeah but it's it's typical to yeah, me like could, i can throw the question like <laughs> it's, it's just because i'm so interested mm -hmm. in, in that it, it, it's 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 interesting though okay listen mm -hmm. listen folks um when if you look at everything that's going on right now, um, and when I'm when I'm throwing a statement like like this, people usually think that I'm that I mean all the doom and gloom and the, all the bad things that are happening right now. But part of me thinks that there are good things happening right now because we we do recognize the bad things happening. I guess that's a first that's a first thing. So um, when I'm saying when we see everything that's happening right now, it's both the bad things, climate change, plastic pollution, biodiversity loss, all these things, but also good things that are happening. The programs like Sea Monitor, the recognition of bad things that are happening, which is always like a first thing, you know, uh, first step to actually make things better, to recognize what's, what's, what's bad. How in general you see the, the future of uh, marine ecosystems basking sharks and, and all that. Do you think we have a chance for these ecosystems and these species to recover? Uh, do you think like, well, if, if during the next 20, 50 years, we maintain what we have, we already doing good, or, you know, we're just delaying the inevitable? What's, what's your view on that? Well, I mean, personally, I always think there's cause for hope, but I do think we need to act now um, and very quickly to be able to maintain what we've got and try and improve it. But the thing that gives me real optimism for, for conservation and, and the marine environment is the way that people have become more interested in it in the last few years. I think, you know, after we've, we've all seen like the, the big documentaries like Blue Planet and Planet Earth, and the way that seems to have inspired everyone to try and do their bit and like, you know, oh, maybe we should, you know, use public transport or walk rather than taking the car or like maybe we'll try and eat less meat or that there's lots of ways that everyone can contribute to try and cut down their impact on the natural world. I mean, it, it's amazing and inspiring to me to show how many people have taken up that kind of call to arms to do something about it. Uh, I, I think that really gives me hope that people really care. And when people care, politicians will then listen and then programs like ours get funded and then hopefully the research will then go back to inform government and it'll be a positive feedback cycle. So I have hope for the future. Yeah, right. but what about you, Amy? Maybe I'm being too optimistic, what do you think? <laughs> Um, yeah, it might be a bit optimistic, but I do think it, things are looking up and I think any small change is a change in the right direction. And that's hope for conservation yet. And there are so many projects going on um, and so many people interested 
um, doing research on different marine animals, different wildlife in general or conservation objectives, um, that I think it's, hopefully it will make a change. All we can do is hope. Right, right. So in, in, in general, you, you, you're, you're not like a doom and gloom, you're kind of hopeful that you, do you, so you think that the recovery is possible in the next few decades? If enough work gets put in, yes, I think so. Oh, okay, fantastic. Well, what, um, what do you think, Tommy? Do you, I mean, you've been interviewing people for so long. What do you think about this? Um, yeah, you know, I, I feel I'm torn on, I'm torn on this. And thanks, thanks for asking that question. Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit torn on this. Um, I see a, a little bit too much optimism in certain quarters, um, and and especially uh, when you talk when you, when I talk to anglers and like mo less from the scientific, so like scientists like 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 yourself uh, are more balanced. And it's like generally hopeful and optimistic, but kind of balanced. What I found out that when I talk when I speak with anglers, hunters, and anglers, there tend to be um, tend to explain certain things that are obvious in a positive way to themselves. So for example, uh, we're catching less and less fish and the fish is smaller, right? And quite often the reaction is like, oh, but you know, the weather, there was uh, too much rain and the salt water is not salty enough. And, you know, this sort of things. And over a period of time, you know, I, I uh, came to Ireland in like 12 years ago. And even on this, on this short time scale of 12 years, I can see I catch less fish and the fish is smaller, period, right? And, and I think that sometimes it's too much of a trying to find explanation, like elaborate explanation why it is happening while the explanation is like out there, do you see that boat? That's a trawler. That's the explanation. Not that the water is not salty enough because of rainfall or, or, or stuff like that. Um, I, think, I think to answer the, the, main, the main question that we will face some, of a, some more of a decline because of the inertia before we you know, put enough effort. We start to, we start to see this. And I, th and I see this as a, as a positive, um, positive thing and and quite often those uh, doom and gloom people or alarmists like they call them uh they have a role as well they may be on the side of a spectrum but they also have a role because quite often you need to scare people to so they can start acting if they're not scared right it's, it's sometimes some people you can argue and say like yeah we need to do that say, mm, yeah we need to do this and some people just need to be scared before they take, take an action um so Given the history of, of humankind, uh, I, I don't like this approach like, oh, humans are all bad and like, no, 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 we're not bad. We figure out a few good things like a healthcare, universities, movies, these are good things. So I think that overall we are smart and this, the fact that we start recognize these problems is a good way and a good path forward to improve things. My concern is about the inertia, you know, how much more we gonna lose before we are on the upward trend once we recognize that. And, and, and that's partially what I really love to talk on the podcast with, with scientists and, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm talking a lot about conservation and all these things. Um, 
just to raise the awareness and, and kind of, you know, because where the podcast started was really hunting and fishing. It was hunting and fishing. And, you know, uh, traditionally, a lot of my, my audience and a lot of episodes is like, oh, let's catch a fish. And, you know, like I said, put a half a mackerel on the hook and, you you know, this, this and that. And this is kind of like a mindset that is like, oh, there's a there's a plenty of fish out there. Just go in, catch them. That's good. And it's also very prone to the shifting baselines, right? We mm-hmm. we catch we all oh, we caught this many fish, right? Yeah, what your father would caught on that day, what your grandfather would caught on that day, would they be impressed with your catch? I even um, commented on on Instagram the other day. You know, one one of the guys were, you know, typical grip and grin photo with a cod. It's like, oh, my personal best and whatever, right? And I look at the cod. It's like, dude, that's a tiny cod. Like, I mean, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to crap on you. It's, you know, congratulations. It's your personal best. I, you know, great fish, great fishing, but honestly, that's a tiny cod. (laughs) And this is like, this is this shifting baseline, right? Because now you've got this, you know, young people, uh, 20 something anglers, like, oh, personal best. Look at that fish without even having this in mind, like realistically, your father wouldn't be posting that photo anywhere <laughs> because it's, 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 it's just very, very tiny fish. So, so this is my view on that. Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just worried how much we're going to still going to lose before we're going to be on the upward trend. And, and I believe we will be on the upward trend eventually. That's, that's my view. <laughs> no, I think that sounds like a balanced viewpoint. That's, that's, I think sums up everyone's concerns. So how, how long, how much is too much? And then, I mean, everyone's recognizing the climate emergency now. There seems to be a bit more action in that area. And unfortunately, delayed, of course, because of all the horrible things from the pandemic. But I do think people are taking steps forward now and it is being more widely recognized. So mm-hmm. hopefully we'll be uh, on the way up soon. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, just to wrap this up, is, is there anything that you would like to share with us uh, and with our listeners uh, that I haven't asked you for or you didn't have an opportunity to, to tell or share? Um, I guess the main thing that if people want to follow along with the Sea Monitor is and see what the updates and obviously like please do follow us along on Twitter we're at Sea Monitor One um, my Twitter handle is at Sunfish Research and Amy is at Amy Garbett right mm-hmm. yeah so um, if anyone would like to get updates on the project and and how we're doing with basking sharks and flapper skate and, and all the other vulnerable marine species then please do follow us on social media and we're very happy to take questions at any time. Yeah, I can confirm that. I can confirm that. All right. Uh, Amy, Tasha, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. It was a pleasure talking with you. Great. Thank you so much.